and welcome back to JW Forwardcast, the show that helps former Jehovah's Witnesses pick up the pieces, put them back together, and build them into something awesome. So in today's interview, I'm taking things a little bit in-house, and I'll be chatting to fellow JW Survey team member, Chloe Leon. Chloe's kind of a badass. You'll probably work that out as you listen to the interview. She has done some really awesome things since she uh, left the Jehovah's Witnesses, which include kickstarting her career, traveling the world, and uh, joining the circus. Yes, you heard right, joining the circus. We will be discussing that. Chloe also, uh, unfortunately, has experience of dealing with domestic violence when she was in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And she talks about that very frankly, um... And she also talks about moving forward and overcoming that experience, which is very inspiring to listen to. It's a really good interview, and I think you're really going to like this one. So before we get on to the interview, I'm just going to do a quick bit of housekeeping. So first of all, I want to give a huge shout out to two very kind new patrons of the show who are supporting us over at patreon.com slash covertfade. A massive thank you to Viv and Robert K. Your support is very much appreciated. And if you'd like to support the show on Patreon, uh, you can find us, as I've said, Patreon slash Covert Fade. And in return for your support, you'll get all sorts of goodies, everything from early access to the the show to uh, access to Ask Me Anything episodes, um, the Patreon-exclusive show The Covert Files, film commentaries, and much, much more. Also, I thought I'd give you a quick sneak peek into what's coming up on the show in the near future. I've recorded an interview with Jeremy Howell, aka Mentally Diseased, on YouTube. Uh, or if you follow him on Twitter, he's on at uh, germ on Twitter. Uh, he's an XJW activist with uh, a very interesting story. If you check him out on YouTube, you can find more about him. But we discussed a number of topics, including dating, because uh, I'm straight and uh, Jeremy's gay. And we kind of discuss the uh, the different challenges that face XJWs when they try and start dating in inverted commas real life when they leave the cult. And also I get Jeremy's perspective on the gay side of that, what it's like to be a gay XJW trying to integrate into that community. It's a really interesting episode and I think you guys will like it. That's coming soon. Also, with Alice Cheshire, I've recorded some more answers to listener questions that have been very kindly sent in, uh, either to jwforwardcast at gmail.com or sent to us on Twitter or other locations. Uh, Those will be coming soon as well, so stay tuned for those. And there's two more interviews with uh, guests. I don't want to spoil it yet, but there are some really interesting guests who will be appearing on the show in short order. So, that brings us to the end of the housekeeping So without further ado, I give you Chloe Leon. Chloe, how are you doing today? Good. It's evening here in New Zealand. How are you? I am very well. I have a little bit of hay fever. So uh, my apologies to anyone who finds me unusually croaky or low energy during this interview. Uh, I'm sort of I'm dosing myself up with stuff at the moment, but uh, yeah. <laughs> How's New Zealand? That's kind of, that's kind of, that's where they filmed all the Lord of the Rings films, wasn't it? Yes. And actually Peter Jackson lives in Wellington where I live. So um, I did the Lord of the Rings tour <laughs> uh, just cause you kind of have to. <laughs> um, <laughs> so a lot of it was filmed in public spaces here in New Zealand as well. Cause it's so beautiful. Just, it is 
and it is actually gorgeous in real life as well. So I'm loving it. Nice. Do people from New Zealand get a bit annoyed when people from other places turn up and just talk about Lord of the Rings or do they quite like it? Um, it depends what kind of tone you have when you do. So uh, the tour guide was saying that some people are like die hard Lord of the Rings fans and they like correct him and stuff and it's kind of obnoxious. But other people are <laughs> kind of really excited and they find it kind of cute. <laughs> Awesome. So if, if you're planning to do a Lord of the Rings tour, just, just, just be, just be kind of cute and don't correct the tour guide and you'll, you'll be okay. Because nice. everyone here is super chill. So yeah, stay chill guys. Ah, awesome. So yeah, New Zealand's actually on my list of places to visit. So I'll have to, I'll have get, I'll have to get around to doing that. Um, but yeah. So Chloe, you are um, part of the JW survey team. Um, you've been part of the team for quite a while. And there's a number of reasons I actually wanted to get you onto this show because we've obviously been talking and I've been kind of getting to know your story over the months and years. And I think there's a lot of interesting experiences you've had, both in your JW life and also then when you kind of like left and started to explore your own life, that I think would be really useful for, um, for the audience to hear. Could you just start by giving us a quick outline of like who you were as a JW, what your what your JW life was like and sort of how you ended up leaving? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as a kind of brief summary, because I think I've done some videos online giving a, a kind of longer story of up until I left kind of thing. But um, in brief, really, um, my mum started going to Jehovah's Witness meetings when I was about probably like a toddler, super young, and she really, really enjoyed it and everything like that. And then after a couple of years, she was actually disfellowshipped um, for a while, and then we did leave. So I had like a good chunk of my childhood as not a Jehovah's Witness. And then uh, actually when uh, I got to about 11 or 12, um, she decided that she really wanted to go back to Jehovah's organization, as she, as she called it. And we did. And then after that, at first I was kind of reluctant. Um, but then as soon as um, I started going to meetings and starting being convinced that this was the truth, um, we became quite zealous as a family, to be honest. I would do um, lots of ministry, auxiliary pioneering and school holidays. I became an unbaptized publisher at 13. And I was baptized oh, wow. at 14. Yeah, baptized on the 7th of the 7th, 2007. Super holy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Spiritual completeness. Right, right. I mean, I <laughs> worked me <laughs> um and then actually after a little while uh so everything was great I had lots of friends hung out with people parties it was it was really it was a nice environment as a kind of as a child um teenager growing up we had tons of friends so we had lots of social gatherings always at every single meeting if we went on holiday it was usually we would go to the meetings there as well so my mum was very very mm. into it um and then as the years kind of went by, um, we started having some troubles within our family. So um, my uh, ex-stepdad now, uh, he was somewhat violent on a, quite a number of occasions. Um, fortunately towards me, not so many because uh, by the time 
uh, he had started kind of getting violent with me. I was around 16, 17 years old and I was just not going to have it really. Um, and how, how it all kind of went down was that, that um, we went to the elders about it. And unfortunately, just with a lot of other people um, who were in this kind of domestic violence situation, the elders really didn't want to address it properly. And there was lots of questioning whether I did something wrong and I should just forget about it and forgive him now and all of that kind of thing. Um, so at 19, I moved to London. I went to a new congregation. Everything seemed to be going fine. And then there was a few things and I had just decided um, well, it's a bit more complicated than that. My, um, my mom still had issues with my ex stepdad because he was trying to get hold of my brother and trying to take custody, custody of him. It was a whole big mess actually. Um, and my mom ended up in hospital. Um, and when she was in hospital, because she, she was disfellowshipped at the time, none of her friends went to see her. And that really, was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back with me. And when I went to help her, I then decided, you know what? I never want to go back to a meeting ever again. And I, and I didn't. Um, it was around, around 20, 21. Yeah. So that's kind of up until the point of leaving. And in brief, a nice summary there. Um, mm. Yeah. There's lots of ups and downs. And it's really strange as well because you go from being such a zealous family and putting Jehovah first and doing everything that the elders and the congregation and the watchtower tells you to do to like hanging out with Bethelites and feeling like you're on top of the world and you're definitely doing the right thing to it kind of all falling apart and you really not understanding what you did uh, mm. to kind of for it to fall apart that way. Yeah, and that's, that's um, as you said, you've kind of gone into more detail about your story in other places, and we'll put those links up in the show notes if people want to go and kind of get the, the kind of the, the intricate details of your, your JW background. Um, but it's interesting to note that one of the aspects that you had to deal with is, is this issue of the domestic violence in your family. And it's interesting because I think increasingly we're aware of... Um, often some of the, you know, the abuses that go on behind closed doors in Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and in, usually at the moment, the attention understandably goes to the, the child abuse scandals that are going on. Right. Uh, people are increasingly aware of the, uh, the, the terrible mishandling of child sex abuse inside the Jehovah's Witness organization. But we're also increasingly coming to be aware of the issue of domestic violence. Um, because I know when I was growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, I thought that just didn't happen right. inside Jehovah's Witnesses, that there was no way domestic violence could happen. And if that it did happen, it would just be, it would be dealt with, you right. know, the, the, the elders would get involved and everything would be made okay. Um, and so it was quite, um, you know, listening to you talk about and your, your, your family talk about what, um, you and your, your mother and your family went through and also listening more and more to other former Jehovah's Witnesses talk about, yeah, this was an issue in my family as well. Um, if, if possible, could you talk a little bit about what this, because this is one of the reasons I wanted to, wanted to discuss this. I think a lot of XJWs from what I understand actually have encountered this in their JW life and might not be trying to deal with it. So can you elaborate a little on what your domestic violence experience was like as a Jehovah's Witness and, and how the elders 
basically failed to deal with it. Yeah. So um, by no means was my experience, you know, one of the worst. I've heard stories since I left of, you know, really terrible, horrible, horrific in- injuries and people being feeling like they're imprisoned for what feels like years and years. Um, for me, it was a bit different. Before we started going back to meetings, um, he had hit my mum on a few occasions. I remember one time when she was pregnant and, and I thought, okay, well, now that we're going to meetings, this is obviously not going to happen anymore because it's mm. obviously wrong, right? So, um, but he did have a temper and he did find that my mum kind of was a bit of a trigger for him in that way. And alcohol was a bit of a trigger for him. If he couldn't have the alcohol that he wanted at the time that he wanted, then it could um, kind of then lead to uh, a violent situation where it was kind of very scary as a child. Um, Mm. But what for me is what, what is most vivid for me is around between the ages around 16, 17, uh, there are a number of occasions where um, he had hit me quite badly. And I thought to myself, that's not closed fist discipline. The first time I had no physical injuries on me, but we still went to the elders, went to a specific elder that was um, designated to be our, book study person at the time and I I really didn't feel like he was a very warm person at all it was not something that what I wanted to be and we ended up having um well the adults all ended up having conversations about it and it was basically swept under the rug like okay he's sorry we're not going to talk about this anymore I'm like oh okay I guess that's been dealt with some kind of discipline for him um and then the other occasion there happened to be a few little like things where I felt scared and terrified that something bad was going to happen but it wasn't as bad as that but then uh, on another occasion which really was the turning point for me as far as my relationship with him it was never going to be the same again was um we had gone to uh, to do actually something in the foreign ministry. So we were in a Polish group and we'd gone to go on the ministry there in a different city or something. And my mum had forgotten to buy bread of all things and he got so angry about it. So we ended up going back home and it turned into a fully blown violent situation where he was hitting my mum. And then I went up to him like, no, this is not going to happen, kind of standing up for her in a way. And then his attention turned to me. And it did, there was closed fist punching, there was, you know, kicking me when I was down on the floor. My back was to the wall. He was, he had his hands around my throat. Um, And I did leave that situation with a black eye. And we had basically fled to the car and gone to an elder's house. That elder uh, was a different elder. That elder then left us outside whilst he called elders, made us sit in the car for what felt like an eternity while he was making these calls. Right. But you know, the weirdest thing as well was like one of my very good friends and her family lived next door. And we were like, well, can we just go into my friend's house so that I can like have a shower, you know, put on some other clothes? Mm. Because I was also covered in beer from this whole 
palaver because he had like, he, he was angry because I wanted to pour away the alcohol because I felt like the alcohol was his trigger. And in that mm. case, he then had just poured it all over me as well. So I'm, you know, kind of black and blue covered in alcohol, like had nothing with us. And he made us sit outside when my really good friend is right there because he didn't want them to know anything. He also didn't want his wife to know anything. And she so we were just sat outside and my mum was like, well, if we can't go somewhere else, maybe we'll go to like a battered wives like shelter or something and go get help. And he was like, no, 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 no. We're going to deal. We'll deal with it. We'll deal with it. We'll deal with it. So goodness knows who he spoke to and what he did. In the end, they let us, <laughs> I say let us because it's insane that they have that much control over you, um, go next door to my friend's house and we spent the night there and everything. Um, but again, the situation was not dealt with in a way that he is wrong, you're right, you're a victim, let's go to the police or you should go to the police and report this none of that. It was discouraged. Don't go to the police because you will bring reproach upon Jehovah's name. Since then, that elder refutes saying that, but it's a total lie because he did and he did discourage it. Um, and in the end, uh, I think maybe my ex-stepdad's privileges were removed and that was pretty much about it. They encouraged us to be a family again, sit together in meetings. And it was really, I mean, it was really traumatic for me at the time. I was 17 years old. I was um, full-time auxiliary pioneering as well. So I was Mm. doing everything I was supposed to be doing. And I thought, okay, right, I'll do what they say. I'll sit with him. I don't really want to. I feel disgusting sitting here nobody knows that this thing has happened I went to a wedding with a black eye to be like family and I'd like put makeup on went to several weddings you know there's so many of them um around that time and it was just it was just awfully I was very confused because I didn't really know like hadn't been in that situation before like am I wrong? Am I really wrong? Is Jehovah really like upset with me for this situation? And I learned uh, a few years later that the elders had asked like my mum, what had I done that was wrong? Was he just dis- Wow. I mean, I don't know if you call strangling someone against the wall discipline or, I mean, maybe in their mind, no. really that is, it's against the law and it's violent. Yeah. Right. Especially yeah. to a mind. Absolutely. Um, and then the cherry on top of the cake after we would not stop talking about this, um, two things happened. Um, the circuit overseer, I will never forget his name. I really think that he is a nasty person, if I'm really honest. Um, he called me over in front of people, and there were other elders there, 17 years old, regular auxiliary pioneering, having all of these trials and tribulations, thinking, oh, maybe he's going to give me some encouragement because I'm trying so hard. Maybe this is what I thought. I get to him and he says to me in public, there's other people in the hall at the back of the hall. And he says, um, sister, you're regular auxiliary pioneering, aren't you? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, well, with this whole other situation, you're really treading on thin ice and you really need to stop talking about it now. Good grief. Right. And I will never forget that because that is 
a man in a perceived position of authority basically telling you to shut up about a, a situation that you should be going to the police about. Yeah. Uh, pretty insane. And then a few months after that, I would say probably, um, well, maybe not months. I think it was a little bit, uh, a little bit after that. Um, my mom was actually disfellowshipped because she talked about the domestic violence to other sisters in the congregation that the elders weren't doing anything about it. And she mm. got disfellowshipped for reviling. Who would have known that was a thing. So I just want to make that absolutely clear that you were publicly warned, um, by the circuit overseer in front of people to stop talking about the fact that you had been physically assaulted um, by a member of your family uh, and they had made it clear that they didn't want anyone knowing that this crime had been committed. And then your mother was disfellowshipped for talking to other people about the fact that she had been physically assaulted by a Jehovah's Witness. Well, it was more, she was actually disfellowshipped more because she was talking about the fact that the elders were doing nothing about it. Which they weren't. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Technically, then they're saying that she's like murmuring against the people who've been put there by God, pretty much. They were the types of scriptures that were used. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to listen to because, and again, I think this illustrates one of the problems that many um ex-Jehovah's Witnesses start to realize is being a Jehovah's Witness makes people do things which are completely contrary to common sense and what their natural behaviors would be. Like that elder who you you and your family first went to on that, that time you were all physically assaulted, the natural response of that person should not be to make make try and make a family sit in a car whilst he makes a phone call. The natural human response is to sort of invite people in, see if they're okay, take care of them, care for injuries. Obviously, like you say, you know, you wanted to take a shower and just try and show some humanity. But instead, you kind of have this weird bureaucratic overlay of like, well, I have to I have to call people and get permission to see what I'm supposed to do. Which is it sounds completely insane when you're not a Jehovah's Witness, but if you are a Jehovah's Witness, you'd be going like, "Well, you know, that's the process. The elders got to find out what he's supposed to." Right. Which is which is so crazy now when you think about it. Like, if my friend like had a bad date, I'd be like, "Oh my goodness, come over, let me help you. Do you Mm. want to stay? You want a cup of tea? Do you want dinner?" Like, if my friend had something as traumatic as that happen, I would be like what are we going to do about it? Come here. I I will take care of you. Like I couldn't imagine doing that to anybody. It just doesn't seem normal at all. But in that situation, you just, you're like, oh, this person told me because they're in this position of authority that you Mm. you just do it, but you're confused. I don't know. I'm guessing a lot of people have been in that kind of situation because I don't think I'm unique to that kind of thing. I think I, I, I agree. I mean, that's one of the, the things we know. We and this is one of the things we know. Like with, for example, with child sex abuse, we know lots of um, survivors have been put in that situation. And I think what we're increasingly finding out is more and more, um, you know, survivors of domestic violence talk about their stories. We're sort of seeing the same pattern emerge. That it's like, well, don't don't go. You know, keep it keep it quiet. Don't let people know it will bring shame on Jehovah's name. And by the way, it's probably your fo- your fault for provoking them. Um, that seems to be a, and did you think, do you think there's a culture, um, 
because when they were talking about the elders were sort of saying, well, you know, was he disciplining you? My experience of growing up, and I've never, I mean, I did not encounter what I would call domestic violence, but I certainly know I was, I was, um, the, the, the phrase some people might use is smacked. I think I would, you know, I, I can remember of a couple of occasions where I was like full on pummeled. Yeah. Um, and there is kind of a culture within the Jehovah's Witnesses of accepting that, you know, inverted commas, physical chastisement is what you should be doing as a parent. And what they tend to count as physical chastisement can actually cross that line quite easily into what I think most reasonable people would consider, you know, for something that's far too physical. Do you think there's a culture of accepting that in the JWs? Um, I, uh, from people that I've heard of since I've left, it seems to be a, a correlation between um, domestic violence and being asked whether, you know, kind of victim blaming almost. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't just say it's just with... I wouldn't know as far as like disciplining children, if I'm really honest, because I haven't, I haven't had that kind of exposure to people who've talked about it. But I mean, with any kind of uh, situation where there is a clear victim in a situation, mm. I know of cases which are far worse, which are where friends of mine had been raped by somebody and then, the, the victim is asked, well, what kind of, how much alcohol did you have? Um, do you, did you use contraception? Are you on any kind of birth control? Oh, well then you must've planned to do it. You must wanted it. Did you scream? All oh, right. And then they were disfellowshipped, mm -hmm. not the person who committed the crime. So, I mean, that's an extreme case, but it's not rare. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, um, put it past them to think that it's okay yeah and I, I think the other thing you mentioned there is um from what you were saying that one of the triggers for this violence um was was seemed to be alcohol um that there was there were that was an element in what would sometimes bring this about um is that is that fair to say yeah and it wasn't necessarily yeah. that he was drunk and then did it it was he he wanted the alcohol in that situation and it was a trigger for him if he didn't have it, which is, mm. um, I don't know if that's unique either, but yeah. Yeah, that's interesting too because, again, I think the that's something else I think that Jehovah's Witnesses tend to try and keep a lid on is they're very, and I think most, and I don't know if this changes around the world, but I certainly know my experience of growing up was you could be, actually be quite a heavy drinker as a JW and it was fine. They, they look down on what they would consider most, you know, you can't, they look down on nicotine or marijuana or other, other drugs, but alcohol is a drug that they're kind of, there's quite a heavy drinking culture in JWs. Oh, absolutely. Um, Every party, even as a child, like everyone was drunk. Yeah. And, and it's strange about this. This then leads on to, in some circumstances, either where people are denied alcohol or under the influence of alcohol. Um, you know, people will do things that they wouldn't necessarily do. And again, it feels like the JWs kind of turn a blind eye to it. Um, there's, there's almost like, I mean, Bethel, I think Bethel's notorious for the amount of drinking that goes on in Bethel. Mm -hmm. Um, I know from my own experiences, people would just get, you know, off their faces drunk and then alcohol can be a, like you say, people will do things under the influence of alcohol that, you know, that can be physically violent or they can be abusive in other ways. And it feels like the JW organization isn't really set up to know how to deal with that. 
other right. than beyond just kind of you know they can sort of they, they sometimes slap on judicial committees but they're ill ill-equipped to address the the underlying you know issues that might trigger that alcoholism or that violence that their, their interest is in treating the sin and not necessarily in supporting victims or enabling those those survivors to like you know get away from an abusive person which is the really messed up part right because if say in our situation that kind of thing had happened then you go to the police then mm. the police can then say okay what is the situation here this person although it might not you know mean that he's going to go to jail or prison maybe he has to have like mandatory counseling to help him with his issues so he doesn't mm. hurt him anymore like you're clo- you you're stopping um proper facilities within the governments to be able to close the loop on these kinds of behaviors, not even giving them the chance to do that. And I do know of a friend whose dad was also pretty abusive to her mom the whole time she was growing up. And he, he, he was the nice guy, you know, he was the nice guy in the hall and everyone liked him and she just has to stay with him because he hasn't committed adultery. And it's insane. So if they had dealt with that properly and she had been able to go to the police or even leave him and have a normal life, imagine like how they could be helping victims and imagine how much she's going through even now. She's still with him. I know she is, which is so upsetting because she's the nicest person on the planet, but they're subjecting her to this abuse every yeah. time they do something about it. And, and really, they're kind of taking. Uh, there's there's an upcoming podcast I've got, um, which I did with Alice Cheshire, and we're talking about the importance of having healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. And one of those boundaries is the ability to decide that somebody is, you know, toxic, and you don't want them in that in your life. And wow. the, one of the problems with domestic violence is the watchtower. I mean, we recently had that watchtower that came out that encouraged, um, you know, battered wives, and was also safe for the sake of fairness, battered husbands, because you know we're, we're increasingly finding out that there is domestic abuse sometimes from women towards men. Um, but the, the, the key thing is that that Watchtower article is encouraging people to try and stay together. Whereas, you know, it's a person's, it's a person's right. If somebody punches you in the face, you are entirely within your rights to say, I never want, to, I have decided I don't want to see you again. Yeah. You know, you've, you've crossed the line. And my, if, if you take that decision, my personal decision is, you know, you're gone. And Watchtower takes that right away from people and says, well, you have to go back to them. And if you don't go back to them, we're going to start piling the pressure on and there might be sanctions and you can't you can't get remarried and if you do get remarried we're going to shun you and all of this stuff that absolutely destroys that individual's right to draw a boundary and decide that they don't want someone in their life anymore and that they want to get on with their life without that person and that happened to us like that is very normal thing for them to do um when when of course when that big incident happened and i was like okay this has happened more times now uh, this is not a one-off. Actually, I need to not live with this person anymore. I'm 17 years old. What do I do about it? I either decide I'm going to move out. I also don't have much education yet. So how am I going to afford to do that? Hmm, don't know. Mum, if you don't kick him out, I will leave, is what I said to her. Mm. And then she did. She kicked him out and said he has to get his own place. So he had to. That was done. 
And then the elders started getting involved and saying, we need to be one family unit again. And we need to make attempts at like rebuilding the marriage and all of that kind of stuff. Imagine me sitting there in the hall, listening to these meetings and people being nice and happy and all of that stuff. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to go back home with this guy. I really Mm. don't want to. And I have no control over that. That is insane. And now I have made the decision. I never want to speak to that man ever again in my life. Cause I still have like, I still have like dreams sometimes of like having conversations with him and it's really anxiety inducing. Like imagine if I had to speak to him for any reason when my brother was very young and I wanted to go see him when he had custody of him, I would have to call him and make a plan. I used to get like panic attacks on the phone, trying to just have a five minute conversation in order to, to get my brother because I was so scared of how he might mentally manipulate a situation. Like he would do things like he called my last job that I was at. He tried to send them an email to say like, I was a bad person and I was anti, um, and I was like spewing hate towards a religion because I was part of the JW service team, uh, survey team. He went onto my LinkedIn and I saw that he had, and then he goes, I note that you have a uh, volunteer on there as um, helping with um, this kind of stuff. It's quite ambiguous, actually, but he obviously knows what it is. And it was after mm-hmm. I did a video with um, XFIF, and he was just angry that I'd done that. So, I mean, who knows if he'll hear this and have the same kind of behavior, but I think it's important <laughs> to speak out about it. And you know what? I told someone at my job, Hey, this might happen. I don't know if he already got in contact with you, but he said he, he threatened to like basically ruin my job. I've built all this time up, like trying to build my um, career and everything. And they said, Oh, he won't have any effect on us. We know you. And, um, we'll call the police. And I was like, okay. Brilliant. That must have been fantastic to hear because that that worry, obviously, like you say, when someone's trying to tear down what you've built, it must have been fantastic to essentially, you know, have the people you work with turn around and go, nah, he's just, you know, the guy's an idiot. Yeah, yeah, that is, there is an element of that, but it's also embarrassing that you even have to talk about it to anyone. Like, I want to leave it in the past most Mm. of the time, unless I'm going to talk about it in order to, help other people that is the only time that I want to talk about it because from a bad thing comes good advice or you know I got over this so so can you and you know you're not alone and that kind of um, mentorship kind of situation awesome I want to help people great however I don't want to have to go into a professional environment and say oh here's my story here's the thing by the way this person might contact you um even though I've left them behind (laughs) in a different Mm. far away so there's kind of yes it is nice and it is amazing to know that people out here in the real world are not like that and they're like oh of course we know you and you were definitely a victim in that situation but that's not going to happen again we'll we'll protect you 
which is amazing because when you're inside the religion, you just think that everyone out here might be, you know, that it's a scary place. And if they're not doing this, they must be doing drugs and, you know, just have terrible lives and they're so unhappy. But yeah, I think mm. I've gone around a little bit, <laughs> but yeah. On that on that subject, actually, that's what I was um, you mentioning. Sort of coming to terms with what happened and moving on, and and kind of rebuilding your life afterwards. How have you? Because obviously, the, the witnesses, the, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society provides terrible advice as to how to deal with this. Um, what have you found helpful in terms of dealing with this this issue going forward? Are, are there any like? advice or tips you found useful that you could share with someone maybe who's going through domestic violence right now or who has experienced it in the past and is is trying to kind of move on and put it behind them yeah I think that one of the hardest things for me to get over was knowing that um nothing was my fault first of all second of all just because now I'm past the statute of limitation and the police can't do anything about it doesn't mean that I can't do anything about it. Meaning that if I decide that this person is toxic, like you said earlier, and I don't want them in my life, guess what? I'm a grown woman and I don't have to speak to anybody that I don't want to anymore. And I don't have to consider them at all. And I know that my life is far more successful and I can be whoever I want to be, no matter what they ever said to me, no matter the emotional abuse, the physical abuse, I am strong and I'm independent and I can do whatever I set my mind to. And I feel like also um, I, I feel better about it now because when I get close to people now in my, in my life now, I will eventually open up to them about it and, Actually, it's really therapeutic to be able to tell your close friends what happened to you. And they, you know what? They give you the best reassurance that, wow, I can't believe that happened. Like, you're amazing. And it's not that you want to get that kind of praise, but it's just nice for people to recognize that, no, no, that was not insignificant. That was difficult and that is not what a child should have to go through and it really does solidify your decisions that you make afterwards and it helps you stop doubting yourself when you do want to make other decisions because like we said they say you should be together you you want to let's build the family back together you shouldn't hold a grudge you need to forget about it now because he's sorry he's repented Therefore, you're now in the wrong if you don't accept Mm. that. Whereas, hey, you know what? I will never forgive him. And you know what? I'm at peace with it and it's okay because I don't like him and I never Mm. will. And that's normal and that's okay. You don't have to. And people giving you that kind of normalization of what normal behaviors are is really phenomenal. Phenomenal. It, it does wonders, really. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, like you say, that re- the, one of the, the 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 toxic mentalities that JW's put into you is if you have to forgive someone. You know, if if they, if their repentance and the elders say their repentance, you then have to forgive them. Actually, you don't. Like you say, you're perfectly entitled to say, "No, nah, you're done." 
Yeah. Um, exactly. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm under no obligation to sort of ever speak to you again. I have decided that I want nothing further to do with you. I think an, a very empowering thing once you realize that you're not obligated to take people back into your life or to, you know, to have to associate with people. You, you kind of, you don't owe them anything. You, you don't owe people uh, a space in your social circle. And as a JW, you kind of felt like you had to owe people that. Um, but you actually don't, and you're perfectly entitled to draw a boundary and say, you know, guess what? You're outside this boundary and I never want to see you again. And that's perfectly okay. And, and that guilt that can eat you up on the inside, if they show you a scripture and they, you know, they show you ironically something like first Corinthians around love and what the meaning of love is. And you're like, what the hell, man? Like, it's not loving to punch someone in the face. <laughs> like, really? It's not loving to show zero empathy to two victims who show up at your house. Actually, hmm, it's, there's no empathy or love when it comes to telling a victim to stop talking about it because they're not over it and it's only been a few months. Like, no, actually, I don't need to feel guilty that... I don't want that in my life anymore. And it does wonders when you don't have to have that constant reminder of that one thing that happened. It's pretty amazing. You know, you don't have to think about it every day anymore. If I had to see him every day, man, I would never forget about it ever. Over and over in my head. I can replay it now. Like when I talk about it, it's kind of like, you, you remember those those specific hits that really hurt and the whole emotion of the day and everything. But guess what? Because I don't want that in my life. I don't I don't have to think about it every day. So it's really it is um it's phenomenal what being allowed to make that decision without any guilt can bring you, what kind of peace mm-hmm. that can bring you. Yeah. Did you did you um, seek out any therapy for what you've been through? And if you did, did you find it helpful? Um, I actually didn't, no, because um, I think that um, after everything that happened, like you're told like the elders are the people that you go to if you need this kind of help. So, you know, once you go and then you have this group of men basically tell you you're wrong, <laughs> Mm. and that you're the one who's kind of in the wrong and it's over. Um, I think it was very hard to me, for me to even think about talking about this to anyone for a very long time. Like I didn't tell anyone for ages and ages and it wasn't until like 2015 where I got very close to this one girl when I was traveling in America and I told her like it was dirty. Like I am like, I have some kind of past that's terrible and I'm going to tell you this thing. And she was like, oh man, can't believe that happened. And that's pretty much the reaction. And you're just kind of like, oh, okay. And I think that was the start of talking about it. And then I talk about it with close friends now and then if it kind of comes up. But I think I'm at peace with it now, whereas I, I don't need that kind of help. And I was able to get um, you know, our friendship and mm. the friendship uh, with the JW survey team really actually helped me a lot as well. Like, I didn't feel like I, 
needed it anymore because I had those friends and connections. Um, but I mean, I would have loved it when I was like 18. Oh man, mm. that would have been amazing because I was still a kid, you know, I still needed that kind of guidance. Um, so I think it would have been phenomenal to get that kind of help then. Yeah. Mm. And that's interesting coming onto that theme of like making connections and building connections. Um, because I know obviously you, you left the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and I think like a lot of XJWs, you, you kind of step out of that world and you, you step into like this, this kind of brave but scary new world that has lots of potential, but also potentially we might feel quite unprepared for. Um, how did you go about starting to make those connections? Because it's clear that that was one thing that really helped you to deal with some of the, the pain and the baggage you were carrying out of that situation. So what did you do to start building those, those connections up? Well, working was what I did. So I threw myself into work and I was very young at first. So I really just um, kind of had administrative roles, but I decided, uh, obviously I didn't go to university because that's found fun. And I couldn't at the time as well with my mom and all that whole situation with her um, going on. And it just wasn't the right time. So I'd actually quit school and decided to get a legal secretary diploma. Um, got that just so I could get into an office. And then after that, I just threw myself into it and just decided I'm going to learn anything that I enjoy at work. And I'm just going to learn it super hard. I'm going to go for it. And um, at first, when I first left, um, I managed to get into a relationship, which was nice, but it was more of a one-to-one kind of thing. And it still wasn't kind of enough as far as building those connections. So when we broke up, I did have like a significant period of time, probably around a year, maybe, where I did feel like really, really lonely. It was super hard because you go from hundreds of friends, right? Like you have... Mm all of these connections and you're busy every single day. There's always something every weekend. There's a social event of some sort. You're surrounded by people to pretty much no one's going to talk to you anymore. So I had a year where I threw myself into, um, uh, Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They were kind of my friends, which was fine because it actually gave me time to, think about myself and think about what I wanted. And then after I was done with that, I um, did one post on one of the kind of forums, kind of said my story and I made a little friend out of that. And we had like an online connection for a little while. We would talk a lot, which was super nice. And then he's from America. So it kind of expanded my outlook a little bit. And I started uh, adding people on Facebook from school. And I thought to myself, wow, look at all these amazing things that people my own age are doing. And one Mm. of the things someone had done was go to do Camp America. So he'd gone, um, to America for a few summers in a row and he'd made a ton of friends, uh, international friends from it because you go there for like three or four months and so do loads of other people from all over the world. So I thought to myself, why not? So I just Mm. paid for it, made the application, did a video, boom, I have a job at a traveling circus school in America. So traveling circus. So you've got to, you've got to tell us about this because this, this is, this is cool. Right. So it it happened very quickly because I'm basically with, uh, 
applying for camps in America, you pretty much get a camp come to you and say, hey, would you like a job with us? Let's have an interview. The the one that came to me was um, Circus of the Kids, Traveling Circus School. They go to a different camp every single week um, and teach kids circus skills. Sounds cool. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, Disclaimer, I knew nothing about circus. Why would I? (laughs) So, but I thought, you know what? Why not? I'm going to go. I I like working with kids. You get to travel. And I went. Um, It turns out, because I'm a super planner, that I had managed to, I knew I was going to go, but I'd managed to nail down a job from all of that learning that I had been doing because I had no social life on um, uh, some software that I found quite interesting at work. So I'd landed a job with a company that implemented this software. So in, I was due to start the job in January, but then due to go to camp in May and have four months in America. So I said to them, you, you, you never get that unless you ask, which is one of my biggest um, mm. advice to everybody. You can ask for things in the real world. And the worst thing that's going to happen is they might say no, but lots of times they do say yes. Um, mm. So I asked them, oh, can I start the job in January, but can I have four months unpaid leave to go to the circus? And they're like, that's fun. Sure. <laughs> it was that easy. So I ended up landing a job that I really, really wanted. And I got a summer in America. So I doing my job, then I go to America. And it's really, really, really hard work. <laughs> like 15 <laughs> hour days, children constantly, not a moment's peace to yourself, really. It was so hard, but it was intensely fun looking mm. back on it as well. I learned mad skills, but the, the thing that I, that I gained from it most was that I got a few really good connections from it. We were living, working, socializing together. It's inevitable that you're going to meet one or two friends and they happen to be American. So, mm. um, I went back and visited and went back and went back and went back to the point where I now have probably more friends in the United States than I do in the UK. And I don't know what I would do without them. They are amazing. I love them. And um, that then, if you want me to carry on. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's, it's interesting, yeah, because I think what we're seeing, and, and obviously, yeah, if you carry on in a second, but what we're seeing kind of here is they the answer to the sort of, I work a lot of XJWs who think, well, how do I restart my life is you just kind of threw yourself into it. You kind yeah. of, you, you, you threw yourself into it. You, you find that thing and there will be fear. And yeah. that's, you know, you can't grow unless you push yourself outside of your yeah. comfort zone. And I think a good point on it as well is that um, I didn't make a um, hundred new friends. Then I made two or three really good friends over mm. those four months. So these things, they do not happen overnight, just like with JWs. When you're a Jehovah's Witness, what happens is you walk into a kingdom hall, you say I'm a Jehovah's Witness, and you have a hundred conditional friends right mm. there. When you're in the real world, you say, hi, I'm Chloe. And you go, 
you, you, they, they talk back to you, but you're not friends yet. It's not instantaneous. These things take time to build. And mm. um, people have friendships all the way back since when they were at school. So you don't have that um, benefit of history with these people. But you know what? It is terrifying. And I'm not naturally... Um, someone who wants to go off and make a ton of new friends because it's it's actually super scary but none of my friends now would know that because I just bite the bullet and go okay I'm gonna put myself out there and whoever wants to uh, be my friend will be I think you kind of just have to trust Mm. that there are really amazing people that you will mesh with out there and there might be 10 not 100 so yeah yeah, I, I had a similar thing in that you kind of, you, you at first you feel quite lonely because you had all these like hundreds of friends and now they're all gone. But then you realize that, well, and some of those people actually would have, I think I would have genuinely been friends with, if I, you know, if we hadn't been JWs. But a lot of those people are conditional. And a lot of those people, you didn't really have any genuine connections with them. You more like had a, you had a tribal affiliation. Mm. And because you had that tribal affiliation, that's what you think a friendship is. And I had a similar process where I just had to throw myself into things that, like I did a lot of stuff with Meetup. There's an app called meetup.com that, that has all these interests um, of, that people are around you into all these meet, meetings. So like, you know, anything from stamp collecting to reading to hobbies to history to philosophy to literally anything you can think of. And one thing I did was join those and went to all these meetups. And now there's a, lot of, there's, there's a lot of people I know from that, and there's a couple of people who now I consider friends. Yeah. Um, and it, it takes a while, but I, for me, that was a really good way of doing it. And the other thing for me also was work. There's a couple of people now, because now I'm allowed to socialize with people at work. So I accepted all the social invitations, even though it made me feel profoundly uncomfortable. And from that, I've got a couple of people who, again, they're you know, really good friends, but it's kind of built up over time. Absolutely. Well, one of my best best friends is from work like I didn't even know what I would have done without her over the last three or four years because she is a phenomenal woman and I and she's she's Hindu I mean imagine mm. imagine hanging out with somebody who is religious and it's <laughs> not a Jehovah's Witness right and imagine just like respecting their opinions and their views and their beliefs oh my goodness mm. You know, and she is so inspiring. She's a lawyer. She managed to help me learn how to do so many things as an adult, pretty much. Like, okay, navigating relationships, um, talking to friends and family and all kinds of things, getting to know London, you know, like she's, she's awesome. And she inspired me to travel and do loads of things. And she's always been someone since I've known her to be kind of like, Oh, do you want to do that? Yeah. I reckon you can. You definitely can. You've got this. I'm so proud of you. And she wrote me this amazing card before I moved to New Zealand. And I cried because she's she's wonderful. Imagine, I couldn't imagine not knowing her now. So, yeah, so I think the key things are about, like, like you said, putting yourself out there and then just accepting. Every, I accepted every single invite like you because I was just like, okay, I'm going to do everything I can <laughs> within my power to not reject any kind of social situation because i mean what else am i going to do mm. at that point? 
And also, I like what you mentioned about how that piece of advice is, and I would totally agree with this, is like you're allowed to ask for what you want. And the worst thing that can happen is just they say no. Because I think as a Jehovah's Witness, I felt very much you have to wait and be told. Um, But it's so liberating. Like in that situation with your job, you were like, you know what, actually, can I, can I, I'd like to take the job, but I also want to do this. So I'd like to do both. And I'm just going to ask for it. And they said, yes. And it's actually quite surprising how often if you just say, you know what, I'd like to do X and I'd like to do Y, you know, can we make that happen? People will kind of go, yeah, all right. And in fact, I think that actually it makes you more attractive to employers in that kind of situation because they're like, oh, this person's interesting Mm. and they know what they want to do. Cool. Well, I'm not paying for it anyway. I'm just giving them some time off. Why not? Why why wouldn't they let you do that? In and any company that is worth working at will probably let you as well because they they're good people, you know? Mm. I mean that's that's very much a thing. A company that's worth working for is looking for people who are motivated and have interests and who will actually because that's what you want. You want your employees to be motivated individuals who will actually stand up and think outside the box or just ask for what they want or because then they'll be doing that for you as well. They'll be doing that for your company. They'll be asking for things for your company that maybe, you know, a more timid employee wouldn't wouldn't do, or they'll be they'll be more innovative. So People actually, whereas the Jehovah's Witness mentality is you very much, you kind of like cower down and you're told what to do and you kind of like stand hand-wringing before Jehovah with your cap in hand and maybe meekly ask for something. The reality is in the real world, people, was it this, you know, pe- people who ask for what they want tend to get what they want. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite empowering once you realize that. And as you said, the worst thing that happens is they say no. And you either go, okay, or you go, okay, well, can we negotiate this? Well, you know, is, is there a version of this that is acceptable? And you can kind of, it's amazing how much you can turn your life around just with that mentality. It's very different than elders saying no. And if you dare, like, disagree with me, then you're in trouble to, okay, negotiation. Oh, that's a new concept, you know? <laughs> It is it I know that like we we can laugh about it now, but like people who've done this for much longer than we stayed in uh, and they're coming out, maybe they're you know twenty five years older than me, and they're thinking, you know what? I want to go to university and I want to have a career now. Mm. You can, but those kinds of ingrained kind of behaviors and mentalities don't just go away overnight. But I guess maybe hearing from from some other people who have done it to say, yeah, your opinions are important and what you want in your life, what you want, not what someone else is telling you that you should do, what Mm. you want is important because this is your life. What do you want? Okay, I've decided I want A, B, and C. All right, what are the steps to getting there? And that is like, so okay and it's really underestimated and a lot of people on the outside won't even understand that concept you know I'm very grateful for my situation in that I've had some of these things happen and they might be traumatic but I was reading recently about this thing called post-traumatic growth which is kind of like not necessarily the opposite to post-traumatic stress but it's more like um 
the, the benefit of, you know, having this psychological adversity or something else, some other challenges have made you realize what is important to you and help you then think about, oh, how do I get over this? And you kind of realize, mm. wow, I haven't been doing this thing that I wanted for, what, five years? Okay, nothing's going to stop me from getting the things that I want now and learning new things and doing new things and having new experiences. I'm going to ask everyone for the things that I want who are in my life. You know, just so many more doors open to you when you have that kind of psychological shift from, like you said, you, you know, you can take, you can do this if someone lets you rather than asking for it, if that makes sense. Like a lot of people, even people who haven't been Jehovah's Witnesses or have been in any kind of cult or anything might be like, okay, I'm never going to kind of ask for a pay rise because they offer you a pay rise and you accept or you move to another job because you didn't get that pay rise. Actually, if you said, hey, I deserve this pay rise because since I started, the job that I took was this, and now I do X, Y, and Z extra, plus the quality of my work has gone from this to this. I deserve this much more. That's the sort of a negotiation, mm. and it works. So there's things like that that I've done as well, which I realized, and I've picked up along the way from getting advice from other people at work, so... Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask, actually, because I mean, there's, there's two things you mentioned there, which are really interesting to me. And the, the first is that post-traumatic growth concept. Um, that's really interesting because there's so much of it is how we frame what's happened to us and how we use it. And obviously, as you say, people go through incredibly difficult circumstances, but then you kind of come out the other side and you kind of, you see there's there's two reactions. And this isn't to kind of like say, you know, obviously people go through horrible things that I could never understand, but you sort of see two types of reaction. One is the kind of the person who lets that experience destroy their life that comes next. But the other is the kind of person who takes that experience and uses it to drive, you know, like you say, okay, wow, I, I got through this, or this has taught me who I am as a person, or I am, I am not going to let this thing define me. And it becomes something that drives them to go out and actually get what they want. In many ways, that's the kind of the XJW experience when you leave as a former Jehovah's Witness. You can either let what the JWs, you can either look back and say, oh, it's terrible, I was, I've was i lost all this time in a cult, which is something I struggled with when I left. I was like, well, I've lost, you know, half my life's been like eaten by this cult. But it kind of made me, okay, well, what do I do want to do with the other half? Because now the other half is down to me. Yes. I can't sit here and blame the, I can sit here and blame the JWs for the, the bit that I was in, but now I'm not in, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness anymore. So what comes next, I can't blame Watchtower for. I have to take responsibility for this. Absolutely. And also I don't want to waste this time because I've seen what it's like to waste that time and I've seen what it's like to spend all those years doing something you don't want to do. And for me, it's now this drive to kind of actually go out and get the life I want and to, to follow the interests and to follow the dreams. Right. Um, and so much of it comes down to, I think, like I'm fascinated. I'll have to do more reading on this concept of post-traumatic growth because it seems to be, I, I can quite see how that, pe- that happens for some people. And that's not to dismiss post-traumatic stress. Obviously, that you know, people will... There are circumstances where people will need therapy, they'll need counselling, and there'll be there'll be something there that needs needs help. Post traumatic stress disorder is a medical condition. Yeah, so yeah. Wants to discount anybody's you know actual emotional um, conditions or heartaches at all. This is just a concept that I found very interesting as well, and the fact that 
um, a lot of the time. This is very, very common. And it does say, I mean, Wikipedia is not the, uh, the source of all truth, <laughs> but on Wikipedia, it does say that encouragingly reports of growth experiences in the aftermath of traumatic events far outnumber the reports of psychiatric disorders since continuing personal distress and growth often coexist. So mm. it is far more common than I think people would even necessarily think about if they're not kind of thinking about this. You know, you see a lot of the negativity around stress and what it can do to you. But if you have some challenging circumstances, like you said, then you can say, all right, well, the past is the past. What am I going to do with the future? And that doesn't mean that you don't need some healing time. Like I talked about, I had that year of, you know, just being with myself and feeling comfortable in my own body. And it was, you know, it was, it, it was a bit lonely, but after that it was kind of like, Oh, the world is my oyster. What do I want to do with it? Mm. I mean, speaking of that, so we kind of, on your career, we've, we've got to the point where you were, um, you started this job that also gave you the time off to go and, and, you know, be in the circus, which is kind of awesome. And obviously now since then, you, your career and your life has progressed. You've been kind of your, I know your career has been progressing and you've been globetrotting. So how have you kind of found that, that path that you're forging now? Do you have any tips for someone who's, yeah. who's looking to kind of like forge ahead with a career that, that might open up doors to travel? Cause that's right. something else. And I want, I want to get onto specific travel tips later, but that kind of career where someone's thinking, you know what, I'd, lo- I'd love to like get a career going, but also I like the concept of seeing the world. So how's that? What tips would you have for that? Well, um, I'll be perfectly honest. Some of it was a complete accident and some of it was that um, I asked for these things. So uh, the first thing that I would say is um, choose what's important to you first. So for me personally, career is super important because I love learning new things and I work in learning and development technology spaces. So I get the best of my kind of mathematical minded side plus the empathy and learning because I didn't get to learn before. So it kind of groups all of those things together, which is perfect for me. And I absolutely love what I do. I Mm. love helping people with the power of technology. I love helping people be able to learn again. So for me, I picked something and I found something by accident. I found it, um, that I really, really love. So for other people, they may want, um, to be able to get a nice steady income and be able to have an awesome personal life. Um, so just have enough money to be able to do all of those things. Um, so I'll talk a bit more about, um, my kind of kind of, um, yeah how I view it for me because Mm. I just didn't want to discount people who, you know, they they have their nine to five or they have their job and everything else is important um, because I'm pretty passionate about what I do. So that kind of plays a big role in how I've progressed. Um, Mm. So, yeah, so I got this job that let me go to the circus. Yes. Um, But it also exposed me to a lot of um, healthcare organizations in the UK. So for a long time, I was implementing the software, helping people learn um, national health service, private healthcare, and then a few other like private banks and everything. And that way I managed to meet a lot of people in the kind of London, Southwest area as well. And so I met so many people and learned lots of skills from them. And I would 
could kind of put my all into all of that. And it turns out that my, um, they, my boss saw my kind of hunger to learn and do things. So he would give me more and more responsibilities and I would also ask for them. And I would say, oh, I don't need help with this anymore and I would kind of go off and do it by myself and I would learn everything from the internet I possibly could about this and then it got to a point where I was visiting America quite a lot um, on holidays so I was taking leave to do it and I ended up dating one of my friends that I met at the circus her cousin because they're a lovely Jewish family and they decided they wanted to play matchmaker so um I thought, huh, I love going to America. And um, our team at work had grown to the point where I was at a more senior level and I was kind of running the implementations from a program management standpoint. So really I was in charge of helping make sure all of the projects were on track and they were consistently delivered. So at that point I had people going and doing that job that I already had been doing. Mm. So it meant that I didn't need to go to physical clients anymore as much. I could make phone calls and I could, you know, work from wherever in the world. I'm pretty much a digital nomad at this point, controversial. Um, (laughs) But um, it meant that I could take my laptop and be wherever because if I did the work that needed to be done in any location – it really didn't matter. So I asked my boss, oh, I have this boyfriend here now and I kind of want to go visit him, but I don't really want to take leave for this because I'm going to work and he's going to work, but I just want to spend like evenings and weekends with him. And guess what? I asked for it and he said yes. So a lot of people that I worked with work for exactly the same company, the exact same boss. They never did what I did because they didn't ask so there's that case again so I ended up working for um probably um it was a week at first to trial it and then it went to a month I tried again and then and then it was six weeks and then I spent three months um which is what you can spend when you go over to the states Mm. um as a citizen so oops um I did that And actually, I'd gone to the point where I went full-blown ambition on them. I was like, okay, we're a small UK company. Um, We're implementing this software here. Who says we can't take over America? Mm. Controversial. But um, turns out, not so controversial. So I convinced the company to open up a US subsidiary. And I was going to go do some market research. And it turns out, um, so I did that last, last year and then it was, it was pretty exciting because I got to spend a lot of time with new friends and I got to be, um, I was actually spending a lot of time on, uh, key on the Island of Key West. So it's just Miami pretty much. And it's right at the bottom of America And I got embedded into this small community. It's only 25,000 people. So it actually was an amazing time to kind of find myself, I say in inverted commas, Mm. because um, when you're in a big city like London, it's very difficult to um, see people as people and be human. 
Whereas when you're in a small town where people are fairly relaxed, you know, there's the beach, there's music, there's um, everyone's just friendly and happy. You can kind of make friends overnight. And that's what I did. So I was kind of considered a local by the time that I left, which was pretty awesome. And then I also went to Seattle for a month. And this is all my ideas. So this is the point yeah. again of having an idea and just asking if you can do it. So this yeah. was my idea as well. So I was like, okay, I think a very good area for this kind of business is the Pacific Northwest of America. I did my research. I wrote a paper on marketing and how we could do this kind of thing. I do not come from a marketing background, but, you know, Google can help. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I was also studying leadership and management at this point as well from a distance learning perspective. So you have to kind of, you know, take on projects and be innovative and ambitious and try and figure out um, how to get through these kinds of different areas. So I did that and I ended up in a community in Seattle. Um, there's an awesome learning and development community in Seattle who really also love technology. And I ended up mixing with a few people there and also a good group of people who worked at Amazon at the time, which was like, what? Really? I could do this? Seriously? I am nobody. I come from nowhere. And these people are asking me serious questions and respecting the answers. That was mm. kind of mind-blowing, really. So I just carried on and just kind of got embedded into that community. And then they had a call for speakers at this conference uh, in May, that following May. And I applied and I'm like, well, I'll apply, but <laughs> there's no way they're going to pick me. But, you know, if you don't ask, you definitely Absolutely. get. So I applied and I got it. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> wow. The Credit Ministry School training paying off there. Right, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, which was phenomenal to me. And this would have been like my first kind of public speaking since I mm. left Jehovah's Witnesses, which is actually kind of scary when you think about it because now this is about me. This is mm. like me trying to impart knowledge to other people. And if they think it's terrible, it's me. It's mm. not what someone else has developed this material. Like I'm, I'm developing the material based on my own research. That's, that's pretty mind blowing. Well, it was to me anyway. I was like, I'm no one, I can't do this, but I'm just going to do it anyway because how else do you grow? Like you have to step out of your comfort zone. You really do. You have to feel uncomfortable in order to progress in any way. Yeah. So I did that. Turns out also I had some other diversity when I got uh, uh, adversity, not diversity, adversity when I got back to um, the UK in that um, my job was kind of a little bit redundant. And this was, I found that out in May just before I was supposed to fly to uh, this other conference that Barack Obama was going to be speaking at. And you know what? They wanted to say that I shouldn't go to that now because... I wasn't going to be working there anymore. And I just said, I negotiated. No doesn't mean no. I mm. negotiated that I should go because after all of the work that I've put in for them, this is kind of my own personal development and I really want to go and I really believe in it. Um, 
And then also because I'd got the other conference, which is, so the Barack Obama conference was at the beginning of May. And the second one that I was speaking at was at the end of May. So I figured, oh, shall I just go to America for a month now that I don't have work or whatever? Why not? So I did. And I made a ton of business cards because I was terrified I hadn't been in this situation before you know everything was going great and then it just wasn't so it just shows you it doesn't mean like you know that the the sun doesn't always shine but you have to be proactive otherwise no one just gives you stuff unless you that you prove that you're worth giving anything to so I made all these business cards. I was going to like find a new job. I was going to be able to find clients. I even set up my own company because I was like, oh my goodness, if I don't have that. So I had all these different plans. And I think that's Mm. one of the things about my personality is that I'll be like, okay, I have a problem. All right, let's not wallow in this right now because what am I going to do next? And I set up like five different plans and see which one bites properly Mm. And that's what I did. And it, I, um, I went to that conference where Barack Obama was speaking. I listened to him about leadership. And I went to all of the talks around like being a strong um, leader as a woman, which is something else we can talk about as well. But that was really empowering. And it just made me realize that I do have a lot to offer. I'm not this, just this insignificant person that doesn't know anything. Mm. And we're all learning. We're all constantly learning. So it's okay to not know everything right now. So, sorry. And then I'll just say one more thing and then we'll... Yeah, go for it. Go for it. It's my, it's my punchline. <laughs> um, <laughs> I decided also um, there was a stand there for the software that I had been implementing for the last three and a half years. And I knew some of the people there because I interacted with them before... Um, at other conferences, and I just volunteered to help them on their stand before uh, because I wanted to interact with clients and stuff and learn from people. So what I did was I just kind of opened my laptop and I just started working on the stand and said, hey, I'm kind of bored. Can I help you guys out? And I got a job from that. (laughs) Yeah, now I'm working for that company. So it's pretty pretty it's putting yourself out there is the biggest thing yeah that is awesome and it's actually i think that nicely illustrates the way real life works because you didn't just have all of this sort of falling you didn't leave the xjw's and then just kind of accidentally have all of this success falling into your lap you found something you were passionate about you worked hard at it because as you were saying you were sort of studying everything you could about this this industry in in your spare time you were doing all this training you are ambitious. You're clearly working hard at your job. You're asking for more responsibility. You're delivering results because that's one thing, you know, as, as an employee, you, you need to sort of d- deliver what you're promising. Yeah. You're doing your research. You're being ambitious. So you're working really hard to achieve it. But once you start working hard like that, and also like you say, putting yourself out there. So when you when you found that you were going to be losing that job, potentially you were like, right, I'm going to make a load of business cards. I'm still going to negotiate going to these two conferences because that's, you know, that's really useful for me. And you negotiated that. And then while you're there, you just set yourself up with a laptop and say, can I help anyone? And that's that, this, that kind of spirit of like 
hard work that and, and like I said, and now you're in basically you're in middle earth right now as a result right. of this Absolutely. um and you know you, like you said we were, when we were sorting out this um this chat today so you've just been to the beach and you've got this um we were sort of chatting about you know new zealand and you're having a great time there and it's mm-hmm. this life that could you imagine yourself living this life when you were a jw was this the kind of life you imagined for yourself or is it sort of oh this you is your wildest like, dreams yeah. sort of this is dreamland. Like I'm pinching myself on a daily basis. I'm so appreciative of everything that I have and what I'm able to do and the freedom that I have. And one of, you know, one of Lloyd's videos where he has freedom is my paradise and all those photos where everyone comes in and they're all holding these signs. Like that's how I feel every single day. I Mm. live in the paradise of a place that I love right now, that I just don't want to leave, and <laughs> that I I have this job that I really enjoy. It's really, really hard. My job is so hard, and it's very demanding, but I love it, and I have met awesome people already. Like, even, even to illustrate the amount that I still put myself out there, like, when I first arrived in New Zealand, I was seconded to a second company in order to help um, their business before I was able to start my job, which I just started over just over a month ago. So, you know, (laughs) patience is also a virtue. Um, but I decided I'll invite both offices, all of them to my house for a party. I didn't know any of these people. I don't know the culture of the businesses. I just knew I'm in a brand new country and I know approximately four people. (laughs) and I did that and you know what my house now is open to anyone and they know that so like Fridays is kind of ironically they say oh we'll probably end up at Chloe's how awesome is that like I (laughs) I would never imagine that that would have happened like in that first year of loneliness I had such terrible thoughts about myself and I, I thought to myself what you know no one's in my house right now. And, you know, my family that I was living with, I was like, they're on holiday. Imagine if I just like died here, like no one would find me because I don't have any friends. Like going from Mm. that to, wow, I don't remember the last time I spent like a day by myself and I kind of really want a day by myself. (laughs) Like (laughs) it's it's polar opposite and it's, it really... I just want to emphasize to anybody who is struggling right now or is wondering about possibly leaving but is kind of terrified about the big mm. bad world out there um life is hard <laughs> really not <laughs> going to downplay that at all but life is wonderful if you just put yourself out there and you try and do the things that you love to do you will get positive things back you just have to keep asking and not worry about anyone that says no or people who might not recognize what you're able to offer it's okay because there's hundreds of more people there's millions more people there's billions more people who will notice and if you just try hard like it you're gonna succeed yeah thank you i actually i want to get you back on to do a second show chloe because there's two things i want to sort of drill down into more and one is tips for living abroad and the other is leadership especially like you say for for women and i think that's those two things are kind of their own show so i'm hoping i can twist your arm and get you back on for a follow-up fairly soon um i I talked your ear off it's been that (laughs) 
<laughs> no, this is this is fantastic. And I think because what you sort of mentioned there, I think that's the perfect note to end this show on is like that. Because when, we, when we're with Jehovah's Witnesses, we're basically told you can't do anything for yourself. You have to, if you want anything out of life, you basically have to wait for Jehovah God to give it to you in the new system. Something that resonates um, with me on that is when they tell you and everyone who's ever been a Jehovah's Witness will remember this, but do not lean upon your own understanding. Mm. Guess what? Do it because it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like trust yourself. Learning to trust yourself is the best thing you can possibly do. Absolutely. And that's, I think that is a fantastic um, point to end this episode on. And Chloe, we're going to have to get you back on because I want to talk travel tips because you've, you've done a lot of living in other countries. And I think that's something a lot of XJWs would be quite ambitious to do. And also really that, that aspect of, of leadership, because I think that's good for everybody anyway, but also especially for women, because the problem is being brought up as a JW. If you're a woman, you're, you're told you can't lead. But the reality, obviously, is that women make fantastic leaders. And I think having, I, I kind of want to do it, that as its entirely own episode, because I think that's such an important topic to yeah. cover. Um, so, yeah. For sure. Awesome. Well, Chloe, thank you so much for joining us on the forecast today. Is there anywhere we can find more of your work or what you do online? Um, so, there's a, couple, there's a couple of things. So, there's... Um, if you want to know more about my kind of full story, if you're interested, I mean, just to give you more history on it, there's uh, on the X fifth channel, he has a mm -hmm. video with me and it should just say my name on there from the JW service team, survey team. And I'm sure we'll be able to find the link for them. Also, I recently started a blog. Who knows hey. abandoned, but it is nothing to do with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's all to do with my work and what I enjoy doing. And it's called uh, ChloeLearns.com. There's only four blogs so far, we'll see. <laughs> cool. ChloeLearns.com. And I think that's actually quite important as well, as like you say, once you leave the Jehovah's Witnesses, you don't you want you are an ex-Jehovah's Witness, but you don't want that to define who you are and you don't want that to be every aspect of your life. So Absolutely. cool. Awesome. Well, Chloe, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I'm disgustingly jealous of the awesome scenarios you find yourself in in New Zealand, uh, full of like middle earth and hobbits and elves and stuff is that right I'm, I'm, I'm presuming you're surrounded by um by beautiful elvish people and short little hobbits right now so i think i think it, that's probably me i'm the short one but <laughs> you're the hobbit <laughs> <laughs> five foot two we're close close <laughs> close hobbitish hobbit close to hobbit <laughs> cool well, Chloe, have a great time over in New Zealand and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. If you've enjoyed this show or found it useful, there are many ways you can support it. You can leave us a star rating or a written review on iTunes or whatever podcast software you use to listen to the show. You can share the show on social media, Twitter or Facebook. You can discuss the show on the XJW Reddit or any of the other uh, social media platforms. But most important of all, if you found some of this advice or these experiences useful, well, put it into practice. Because you only get one life. So seize it by the scruff of the neck and make it a hell of a life worth living. Okay, guys, take care. See you next time.